Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm here with uh, one of my good friends, fashion fan par excellence, fashion geek par excellence, my former editor at Heist Navaiti, and now the men's fashion and editorial director at Nordstrom, Gian Dulian. Hey, man. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. I, so, I think I'm going to add fashion geek par excellence to my business card whenever those become relevant again. Exactly. Yeah. When was the last time you, last time you gave someone your business card in person? <laughs> and, they, and they didn't like pour hand sanitizer on it. Yeah, it's probably Japan. Just because, you know, there's such like a heavy business card culture there. So, and yeah, that was, you know... Not even, I would say it feels like a year ago considering what 2020 was, but yeah, I think yeah. it was almost two years ago now since I was last there. Yeah. It's funny when uh, I had my first business cards made for Style Zeitgeist magazine. And when I started giving them out, uh, for the first time, I realized that that scene in American Psycho with business cards made sense because people were like, oh, this is really nice. Yeah, you got to get the bone, you know, and you have to really pay attention to the serifs that you're using. Yeah, on a... totally. This is the first time I was like, oh, okay. Because before that, you know, I'd have like a piece of carton with name and number on it. And mm-hmm. I never got compliments. Uh, yeah, I forgot who has a card, but someone has a business card that essentially said, I'll call you, which I'll I thought was the biggest it. flex. Yeah. Just, it was just here's my card it has no information on it but if i'm interested in you know what you have to say or what you're selling don't worry i'll contact you <laughs> which i thought is the ultimate you know business card to have that's a good one yeah anyway uh so i promised my audience that i'll be bringing in on the podcasts uh just friends who are into fashion and who work into fashion and people they may know or not know, but really who has the inside view on everything and also take people out of their comfort zone a little bit. And that is you, Gian. <laughs> totally. And, Thank you. Uh, we met, how many years ago did we meet? Five, six, seven. Yeah, I don't even like what. What is time anymore? Um, yeah, a long, long time ago. A long, long time ago, and you were working on an article about fashion forums. Yes, that's right. I was. It was at Complex. I was at Complex at the time. I was a staff writer. Yeah, and I think you came to the old office at Mark Echo's. Like, no, we no, we met. Uh uh no, we met. You reached out and you said, I want to interview for this article. And we met at, uh, was my favorite place at the time. One of my favorite places was the Housing Works Cafe on Crosby Street. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that was, and then we've kept in touch ever since. That, that was a deep cut because it wasn't just about Styles I guys. It wasn't just about Super Future. Um, like I interviewed the founder of Nike Talk for that too, Nelson Cabral. Mm-hmm. So it really just spanned all sorts of different forum cultures that obviously have different influences in fashion culture, street culture, sla- whatever slash you want to put in however you want to define. Yeah. 
you know, whatever collective consumer culture we all participated. Doesn't this seem like another era now? It really does. <laughs> I always forget that I, I've been around for a while. So whenever I meet someone who's like 25 and they're like, man, Styles I guys was amazing forum. I was like, what do you mean was? And then I yeah. think like, oh, yeah, well, I guess if you're. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that, that's the point. I've reached out of my career now where I'm meeting kids in their 20s and they're like, yeah, I used to read you. And I'm like, oh, wow. That hits different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, I haven't had a byline, you know, a regular byline that is uh, on a, you know, quite some time, but it just feels different knowing that I've transitioned, of course, into the other side of things from media. But yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's it's, it's like that meme that's like, feel old yet? And I'm like, that actually does make me feel really old. <laughs> I know. And you're like, what? You're like eight years younger than me? Six years? So. I'm 44. How you so, oh, so you're mm -hmm. nine years younger than me. Yeah, so gosh, grandpa. I know, but you know, I have um Asian face, so I look nine years younger than I am as well. Yeah, yeah, agreed. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. So I want to start with your personal journey, so to speak. Sure. Because I think that's what I think also like younger kids want to know. Everybody always asking me how to break into a fashion career. And aside from me wanting to say, just don't do it. Like I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to say all the other things to all the positive and encouraging things. Mm -hmm. So how, how did you get into clothes? How did you get into fashion map out your path to. Yeah. You know, I think you? my, my career, my path has been characterized by a mindset of me not ever knowing what I wanted to do but knowing what I could do and then being open to do other things. Right. So it's always been this, I'm willing to put in the work kind of attitude uh, that really was an expansion of, okay, I know I can put sentences together and write. I know I can report on things that are happening, you know, at least in DC when I, where I lived in Washington, DC, I was like, I can report on things that are happening at a store, like a menswear store level, which is how I started writing for ballet and I noticed uh, what was happening was that whole kind of early blog era, like Kai Snobiety, Hypebeast had been founded in 2005. Uh, but the whole precursor to what would become like the hashtag menswear movement, you know, you got guys like Lawrence Schlossman doing Sartorially Inclined. Um, Jonathan Evans, who is currently the style director at Esquire, another one of my contemporaries, he had a blog, I think, called like Black and Tanned, something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, he was actually one of the first people, you know, among that blog set, the early menswear blogger set that was legitimized with a job at um, a publication or, you know, he went from being this independent guy outside of the industry to be legitimized in the industry. So I remember that quite well, especially when he was um, briefly at Amazon at East Dane for a while as their men's fashion director. But yeah, so for me, you know, I didn't want, really want to start my own thing in terms yeah. of having my own site, trying to write things on a regular basis. I've always been of this uh, mindset where it was like, okay, I know what I want to write about, which is men's clothing or men's apparel, men's fashion. Like the, I don't want to say fashion with a capital F because I was into, you know, getting yeah, yeah. vintage shirts and like Frank Mochin's era J. Crew as well as 
what was happening on Super Future and Style Zeitgeist. Like I appreciated Rick, Margella, and Raph from afar, but you know, didn't think I could ever wear those clothes because I hadn't really, you know, been super involved in that fashion world and still very much felt like an outsider, right? As someone who grew up wearing Nikes and like yeah. sneakers. It just felt like the world was so much further apart. Um, and that I, you know, could never be an active participant in it. So that was my mm-hmm. sort of passive view of yeah. the high designer world. Yeah, I remember you were telling me like I I like you said that you love Boris you, we were talking about it, you said you I love Boris John Saberry, but I feel like I can't wear it because like I almost feel like I'm not cool enough. And I was like, no, man. I wasn't not cool enough. I said not skinny enough or tall enough. <laughs> I, think, I think it was skinny and tall. Those are always okay. the two things, you know. I'm like, I'm like pushing five eight on a good day, you know, if I'm not yeah. slouching. So, and you know, it's like I have like an average body type. So it's like, if you put me in some Boris or some Rick, like, it's not going to, you know, look in that V shape <laughs> that uh, it's supposed to look. It's just like. You know, uh, it's like a lowercase L, just <laughs> straight down like a Slim Jim tube, like yeah. now. Yeah, no, it's it, it's true. It's it, it is hard without designers, and I find also myself sometimes like as someone, yeah, who's not exactly you know size twenty eight. Like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but you know, it's back back to my path, right? So I started writing for Valet. Um, that was my first fashion weeks. Was through Corey Ollendorf at Ballet. I was shopping editor there for about four years. Um, and it was one of those early menswear blogs that was known for, uh, they did like a daily roundup of, um, and really they were responsible, I would say, for really defining what that canon of those prototypical blogs were in the same vein that like Michael Williams was doing a continuous lean. I think Sean mm-hmm. Sullivan had the impossible cool. So, you know, it, like any sort of movement that people look back on, no one knew what to call any of this, right? They just right. knew it was happening at the same time. And retroactively, it became, you know, the, the sort of hashtag menswear era once Tumblr proliferated as a platform. And, you know, it got that name because the menswear hashtag was curated by a lot right. of these guys who started it as bloggers, then migrated over to Tumblr as uh, curators of that hashtag. So, you know, for me that I was, again, like an outsider working my way to be an insider. And I would say that if I were to describe my practice, which is a term that (laughs) I think (laughs) has become newly relevant from outside, outside of art, right? Because everybody is sort of in this constant mode of practicing something now Mm -hmm. as opposed to doing my favorite or my favorite working on projects i'm working working on projects projects. that's yeah okay yeah the the ambiguity era of you know the quote-unquote multi-hyphenate creative has led to everybody having a quote-unquote practice right it's like yeah virgil abloh air quotes practice (laughs) if i were to describe my practice it would be you know turning outsiders into insiders because that's been my journey like mm-hmm. I never thought I would be, you know, photobombing a raft show from the front row. Yeah. <laughs> and yet here I am now. So, you know, when, when you called me a fashion geek, it's like, yeah, I still think I'm absolutely a nerd for it um, down to, you know, the cerebral level, the inspiration, but also the fabric level and wanting to, you know, be 
in the stores or in the showrooms trying things on. I'm definitely of the mindset that, you know, I, I certainly love fashion shows, but I love showrooms even more. And I love that experience of being able to try stuff on. You know, I'm still very much like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Anytime sure. there's a brand I really like and it's just trying different things on um, and appreciating it from that very kind of hands-on level. Hmm. Well, I think this is the that's the thing about you especially i think it goes for all of us who are real fashion enthusiasts or real clothing enthusiasts whatever you want to call us but i think it's that and I, it always actually i wrote an article yesterday that will never be published <laughs> because <laughs> i was asked to rework it and take a different angle but i was thinking again how you know back in the forum days just knowing just regular knowing regular guys who were so super into fashion so super into clothing from the ideas and ethos level down to like fabric level and stitch level and then going and like reading like gq or whatever and think or women's wear daily or whatnot whatever and thinking like God, man, these guys have no idea what they're talking about. Like your average like forum fashion enthusiast could do a better job if they knew how to write, obviously. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, and I always said that they would make better journalists than a lot of stuff that I was reading. Like, uh, and now I'm seeing... And I have, we have been seeing what you said, like guys going from outsiders to insiders just because they know so much more. And part of it, I think, is they don't exist in this PR induced bubble that is only the surface of fashion. That is like, that the whole thing goes way, way deeper than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the lasting things about this new era, sort of post COVID, is you know people like you and me, people like Virgil Abloh, who are digital natives, we've been able to navigate this time where it's primarily digital because for you know certainly a lot of my life and a lot of my formative years in this space was formed by living vicariously through forum culture. You know, before I, I lived in New York, I was a kid hanging out in you know my parents' basement <laughs> in Virginia, <laughs> literally surrounded yeah. by like anime figures etc yeah. you know and like from the outside looking in just being like man one day i wish i could be you know taking fit pics in soho and, right. and then you know to have that actually happen um was still it's still a crazy thought and you know it's, it's in many ways you know you, there's you never feel like you have like made it you know but um because yeah. part of me you know it wants to stay humble and still be that that kid and you yeah, know, yeah. speak to, you know, the 13 year old, 14 year old self that's like, you know, stay hungry and stay curious and try to, you know, continually expand your horizons in that way. For sure. Yeah, I exactly. And I think the moment you lose that, you become this sort of ossified fossil that keeps turning out the same thing. <laughs> and like when you asked me to write for High Snobiety, I mean, you know that raised a lot of eyebrows, right? Oh, you of can imagine. And I was like, no, I want to talk to the kids. I want to talk to the High Snob audience because 
I was that kid, even though I took a very different path, uh, you know, in terms of my style, because I'm a 90s kid. So I grew up, you know, with alternative and industrial music and wearing what I wore. So for me, this whole hip hop explosion, hip hop's, you know, slash streetwear explosion. Of course, I was very close to it just by going to a public high school in Brooklyn. Um, but the point is, I feel like the emotions roughly stay the same when mm -hmm. you're a teenager, when you're a young guy in your 20s or a girl. It, it, it's just, I feel like the packaging changes. Yeah. And that's why... Well, and to your uh, point, right, when, when I imagine one of the reasons you have me on the show, right, is because I can speak specifically to that world of, of streetwear and street culture. Uh, and I feel uh, like that's a mentality where it's always about finessing. It's like it's the kids who couldn't get into the fashion show sneaking their way in or working their way from like a standing seat to the front row, which is definitely still how I feel. It's also the same kids who would sneak into a concert, you know, yeah. and um as much criticism as someone like Virgil may get, you know, I do appreciate how he has made that, you know, part of his messaging of like, I am here because I, you know, not only willed myself, but I subverted systems to get here in a way that, you know, legitimizes this uh, alternate mode of thinking in that mm -hmm. way. And, um, that was one of the reasons why, you know, I thought it'd be great to have you on Heist and Abiety. It's, it's the same reason, I think, a couple of Pity Womos ago, I, I met Christopher Wallace, you know, of course, not, yeah. not the late, great, notorious B.I.G., the yeah. amazing writer who was the former yeah. U.S. editor of Mr. Porter uh, and friend of Rick Owens, like literally yeah. grew up, I think, in Porterville as well, or used to be a busboy at Michelle Lamy's restaurant. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it was like, yeah. you know, he's like sort of a surrogate son to them. But totally. through him, you know, thinking about that uh, streetwear mindset and subverting, you know, your network, I was able to you know, do what I thought was the impossible at the time and get a Rick Owens interview on Complex, yeah. you know, and, and <laughs> I think when it ran, even, uh, you know, there was Rick Owens PR team, like, uh, at a, on another agency was like, wait, how did this happen? And I was like, oh, well, you know, talk with Chris about it. Uh, he talked yeah. to Rick about it and here we go. And I think the lasting influence of that piece is when Rick admitted that he got a cease and desist from Nike. I think that was like one of the things mm -hmm. that is a legacy of, okay, if we're going to introduce Rick Owens at Complex, like what can we talk about that makes it relevant to this audience? And for me, it was like that geo basket. Like what is the story between those pre-2010 dunks with the, the motifs of, and this is also new to me, right? I found out that the, it was a combination of the Nike swoosh, the Puma form stripe, and the Adidas three stripes that comprised, you know, Rick's take on the dunk before he had to change it to that uh, reverse angular, yeah. like isosceles triangle kind of thing that is now on the geo basket. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. To I, fit, I thought it fit the complex audience for sure. And, um, you know, all, all of this is to say it, it does go back to like thinking about how do how do we trick kids into eating their vegetables? Like it's yeah. not hard to sell junk food. Like that's, yeah. this is which is exactly what to. you told me when you yeah. said, "Can you come right for me to high snacks?" Like we have to feed the kids their vegetables. 
<laughs> and in many ways, it is that, you know, it's like totally and in any industry, right? There, there's variations of that. There's things that pay the rent. There's things that uh, things that pay the rent actually is, is industry parlance and urban outfitters when I work there in retail to refer to like the top selling items. So yeah. whether you're in media, whether you're in retail, it's always this precarious balance of the things that you think are good and worthy of putting on, you know, a center stage and highlighting and the things that, you know, meet the needs of the business and keep it afloat. And, you know, long story short, that's why we couldn't stop writing about Kanye West and Supreme. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that, of views yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. That gets a lot of eyes. Yeah. But that, but that said, you know, you can look at what's happening in those stories and then extrapolate ways to talk about Rem Koolhaas, ways to talk mm-hmm. about Hader Ackerman and, you know, in many, or, you know, in Supreme's case, talking about some of the early designers uh, that they've gone on to influence, like uh, Luke and Lucy Meyer, who are now a Jill Sander. So, you know, yeah. it's about looking at everything from this holistic point of view and this understanding that, you know, truly nothing comes from nowhere. And just how do you reverse engineer the references or put the emphasis on the parts that, you know, aren't really talked about as much? Yeah, exactly. And because... That's the thing. It, 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 it doesn't come from nothing. There are cultural influences and piecing them together has always been the fun part of the thing. Because like we said, otherwise it's just clothes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then after Complex, you had a brief stint at GQ, right? I remember. Yeah, uh, it was, yeah, I was a style writer there for a couple months, eight months before I, I got well, went back to Complex, essentially, to replace uh, Noah Johnson, who's now at GQ. Uh, he was the person oh. that hired me, actually, at Complex. So, oh, you know, right. you asked me about how I got here. That Complex was essentially my break. That, that's how I moved to New York. I, I was yeah. writing for Valet at the time. I was a defense contractor by day. That was my day job. And when I say <laughs> defense contractor, you know, I was, I was doing social media for like uh, the defense department. You know, I was, I was writing tweets. Um, and here's a new Lockheed Martin we just yeah, got in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually looked forward to the day I could write about drones and one day it did happen, which was really funny. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, that, that was DC at the time. You know, this was yeah. like in the throes of the Obama presidency before DC became what it is now where, you know, you do have like a thriving creative economy. You have a really bustling food economy and just like it's a destination now for food because of Jose Andres, because of, you know, different chefs like Eric Bruner Yang, who, you know, I grew up with in in DC or didn't grow up. I was already grown up, but he's an old friend from DC that, you know, has come into success for that city in his own right. Um, And I think, you know, they've established a pretty clear identity through their food scene, which I think is great, but it was still coming up when I was there. And so everybody sort of had a day job that was either related to a government agency, a nonprofit or something in the policy field. That was just part of the course if you lived in the city for most people. Mm-hmm. And uh, now not necessarily, it's not necessarily the case, but that's how it was when I was there. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, so- well, um, Why did you rotate out so quickly from GQ? I don't think I ever asked you. I think it comes down to, you know, that was my dream job. When I moved to New York, I had a mission. I wanted to work at GQ. And, um, you know, sometimes you realize that there's a lot of dream jobs and there's a lot of opportunities that, and, and also your dreams change. Like 
Right. I think uh, you know the opportunity to grow at GQ was not there for me at the time mm-hmm. as it was at Complex because right. I was going from being a style writer at Condé Nast and there was an opportunity to be a deputy editor at Complex, you know, and there was of course like a increase in compensation and you know the opportunity to do more and uh, mm-hmm. instead of you know having to go through different people to try to get something done. It was like I was in a position to be able to, you know, call some shots and Mm -hmm. help guide the direction of our coverage in some way, shape or form, more so than I could at GQ. Yeah. Uh, And also pay rent, I suppose. Yes, for sure. That too. (laughs) I read yesterday. I I, I love my time at GQ though. I I learned a lot. I think they're doing great work. Um, My... You know, I, I do wish that I would have had the opportunity to work with somebody like Will Welchmore, who was mm-hmm, like a yeah. senior editor at the time. Um, and it was a different time for, you know, that publication, right? There, there was still um, Jim Moore and Jim Nelson were still there as the editor-in-chief and creative director, respectively. And they were still trying to crack that code between magazine and digital publication. And... Um, right. You know, it was often like church and state still at the time. But yeah, yeah. the intricacies of Condé Nast, I, I could go on for a much longer time. <laughs> yeah. You know, especially yeah. coming in as someone with a bit of inferiority complex, knowing that, mm-hmm. you know, not only am I a non-white guy who works there, but seeing the pedigree of some of the people that, you know, have walked those hallowed halls, like editing Glenn O'Brien's or not editing, but transporting Glenn O'Brien style guy column from, uh, you know, the published magazine to com was, you know, a fun time for me too. just to be able to be in it in that way. Yeah. And uh, getting to write about Air Jordans in a GQ context was also interesting. So, you know, I'm really proud of the things I was able to accomplish there. But uh, yeah, yeah there, there was a very real reason that I saw to transition out of there and into back into complex. No, that I mean, that makes total sense. I think guys like us will always have a hard time with narrow, narrowly defined roles. Just because we have so much to say, I think, and also mm-hmm. so much we want to do that's more, that's more holistic this is why like, I've never closed Styles I guys, even though obviously I don't make any money on it, but basically I can do whatever the fuck I want here. Right. And that's been really the driver for me. Cause if I want to write a certain way, I'm going to write a certain way. If we want to do an editorial that I feel is right, we're going to do that. If, or if we want a tone of voice that feels right, then we're going to do that. And just, offer that point of view. Well, yeah, because in, in many ways, autonomy is the biggest flex, right? And like, exactly. there's so much power in being able to say no, or just being able to say, I don't feel like doing that because yeah. it's not me. I think that that's definitely something um, that's really important. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> also, I read yesterday that an average style editor or assistant style editor makes $25,000 a year. Yeah. Oh, that was in the Andre Leon Talley, the dispossession of Andre Leon Talley piece. From, yeah. From Vanessa Friedman. Yep. And I kind of knew that because we've all seen it, right? It's mm-hmm. 
it's usually you know kids from rich families who get those jobs of course because how do you live in new york on 25k it's ridiculous no you can't uh i mean you yeah you can't even yeah exactly yeah well i mean yeah. you know in the interest of salary transparency um i took a $25,000 pay cut to be a staff writer at complex and after you know a year and a half of hard work, I did get a raise and a promotion, uh, and now you know I'm making significantly more than I was in DC for sure. And it took, but it took a while to get there, right? And so yeah. when I moved to New York, knowing that I was taking such a significant pay cut, I, I saved a lot of money, uh, and then you know the stuff I did get, um, well, you know, I certainly wasn't shopping a lot, and um, then I'd gotten to you know then. The when the moment I could start selling things, like Beacon's Closet and Buffalo Exchange, for <laughs> like a twenty-something-year-old living in Williamsburg, that's like cash for Johns, but like the cash yeah. for gold equivalent. You know, I, I'd take bags there, and then be able to eat for the week. Yeah. So yeah, that, but that was also in that me. article, right? Like you have to supplement your income selling like the free stuff you get mm-hmm. or stuff you bought and you no longer want to wear it. Yep. Reselling and, and I will say, you know, transitioning from media to retail, uh, I, I have been in that position really until only very recently, like only upon leaving media. And this is something you hear a lot too, because Elaine Walteroth also said this when she left media, right? Yeah. Is that she wasn't in a position where she felt she could be financially secure and independent until, you know, she left the world of media and felt like she didn't have to sell or, you know, I certainly felt like I didn't have to sell things I was gifted just to make ends meet or just to yeah. be able to pay rent or pay off like a credit card debt. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because you, you just preempted my next question. Uh, and because again, for all the kids who want to break into fashion journalism, you need to know that it's going to take you a while before you can make a living wage. And you follow in a venerable tradition of Bruce Pask, Josh Paskowitz, uh, who else? Justin uh, Berkowitz. Justin Berkowitz. Uh, um, Nick Wooster. Was he in? He was in yep. the media, right? Uh, no. No, I think he was no, at he was, he was at Burger. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, there are a lot of people who pivoted from uh, from media to retail. Yeah, the, the media think, retail matric- matriculation is very <laughs> yeah. real. And but yeah, let's talk about it because I think it's a fascinating subject and a great subject. Mm-hmm. And I think salary is definitely part of it. And uh, journalists just don't get paid enough. I mean, God knows, like, you know how much I got paid freelancing. <laughs> it's, it's insane. It's, yeah, it's ridiculous. You know, it's peanuts. I, I think it's not all about compensation, too. Like, certainly, yes, of course, like, that helps. But I think Amy O'Dell, right, someone whose work I read a lot, especially when she was at The Cut uh, and seeing how she transitioned out of media into something else, too. Um, I think she wrote a piece for BOF, actually about how um, finding fulfillment in other kind of jobs in the corporate space, whether it's like editorial for brands, 
or, you know, working for a retailer, it, it is highly possible to find that same kind of creative fulfillment you would get from writing a great piece or doing something really investigative and putting it out in the world. And, and I am finding that, you know, because I am taking these intrinsic abilities that I've honed over the past decade, interviewing people, thinking about what's the real big story here. And just, I mean, in many ways, I've already been thinking about how do I hone this in the service of a brand, whether it's been a client for High Snobiety or a partner that we're working with, or a brand that I'm writing about or a designer I'm interviewing. Except now, you know, my main client is Nordstrom and the stories that we want to tell through the platform that we have. And so, right. you know, some of the interviews that I've done for this new concept 12 uh, black space that we did, you know, I was able to have a lot of the same real conversations I was having when I had a podcast with Noah Thomas. Mm-hmm. And then now, you know, I'm able to watch these videos and edit down a lot of the convo. You know, you sort of have to find the gems in many ways still. But I think it's just as fulfilling because it's me finding how I can be in service of the story and elevating, you know, the voice that the subject wants to put forth. And it's not so much about like, well, what's going to make, you know, Nordstrom look the best. And I think it's cool that with this particular project, it was about not centering the brand, but centering the curators in service Mm -hmm. of, you know, this project we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to follow in your steps, <laughs> just like <laughs> so, so many of us have done, because I think I, for, I love the idea because as journalists, as editors, we are also inevitably style curators, right? Because uh, that's we, was, that was my next point, right? I think yeah. like me being in this position, I think is fundamentally different from the skill set that like a Josh Peskowitz and a Bruce Pask provides, right? Which is half curator, half forecaster, and really having like a, an astute buying mindset from being market editors and trained as market editors who were looking at newness, who were, look, who were looking at what's coming down the pipeline and filtering that to a unique point of view. Certainly I do that to a certain extent, but you know, thankfully uh, Sam Lobin, you know, who's also on this podcast and is our SVP of designer new concepts, you know, if you listen to his episode, he's been in stores. He, he was born in, you know, an aisle yeah. of a store. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty, I'm pretty <laughs> yeah, sure you guys cut that definitely. out of the original conversation about. Yes. Yeah. He was born wearing Stone Island. I was going to say he was know. born with a birthmark. That's like a stony patch <laughs> on his yeah. arm. Um, but, you know, he, he is like a really, really good merchant and has that really strong mindset from experience. And I think what I do is I help buttress that with this editorial capability and and this knack for storytelling that, you know, I certainly have from my experience. And I think we sort of sharpen each other's edges in that way. And I think that's why, um, you know, especially with men's, like our buying team for designer and some of the emerging advanced brands, they they definitely know what they're doing. They have a great eye. And so a lot of what I'm here to do is not come in and be like this, this, and this. Um, cause I never want to be the yes, no person. Like, sure. I remember maybe it was a couple years ago in Portland during like a Nike event. Um, I was fortunate enough to be at this dinner with, uh, with Tinker Hatfield, you know, the legendary mm-hmm, shoe designer who created 
the Air Max, Warachi, like uh, the Jordan 3, just so many great shoes, right? And he's of that same mindset where he doesn't want to be like the thumbs up, thumbs down person right? as like right. a creative director or, you know, as someone who is in that position of seniority. And he's more want to, you know, be in his tool shed that he has in his backyard and work on things that, you know, bring him sort of individual fulfillment. And I thought that was like an interesting approach to thinking about what it means to be like a creative leader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think this is why actually we made a good team at Heisnabairi because you're your enthusiasm counterbalanced my grumpiness. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think we talked so, about this. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm more of a John's optimist and yeah. uh, you were decidedly not. <laughs> <laughs> I am decidedly to nice. not. To, to be nice. <laughs> However, I think what we have in common is that the things we're enthusiastic about, we're really enthusiastic about. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and also what we have in common is the cultural connection we have to the clothes we love. Mm-hmm. I just think your scope is much wider uh, than mine, you know. So before I, but before I bring the podcast to my new favorite rubric, explain this to me. Uh, <laughs> I do want to talk about what you do at Nordstrom. And I, again, I think working with Sam Loban, like I couldn't think of a better guy to work for or and with because he really is again a fashion geek par excellence i mean he lives and lives and breathes it and again, oh, yeah, 90 percent of the time when we text each other it's 10 percent work related and 90 percent what did you just buy or what are you looking to buy yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> which is actually not unlike the working relationship i had with david fisher the the founder of high snob <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, same here. Whenever Sam and I like write each other on Instagram, it's it's it will be inevitably like you know. Usually the phrases "this is sick," <laughs> yep, <laughs> or "oh yeah, remember that piece," or "remember that piece," and that's what it comes down to. Um, yeah, uh, you should I'll- see the the thread once um, the Raf Simmons Redux collection started coming in. Like we we had one of our poor managers. <laughs> caught in the crossfire of us just geeking out over the various pieces that yeah. we were planning to buy. Yeah. I, I did that with Sam when the first time we met and there was a, a PR person flanking him, even though we just had breakfast <laughs> and he was just taking copious notes throughout our conversation. And you could see he was so like, I mean, he said it, he's like, I'm so out of my depth here. <laughs> that's like i don't know what number nine is <laughs> things like that. and we're like remember this show from 12 years ago i remember that show and i got that piece from that this is the environment like i can't think of a better environment you'd want to work in no for sure yeah and but tell me more like i love the fact that sam launch cons- concepts and i know you're working on it together which is basically pop-up stores for various ideas you have percolating in your mind. And the current one is Black Space, which highlights uh, Black designers. Well, it, it highlights various perspectives across Black fashion, right? Because I think the exciting part for me is that this is more about the people than it is about the specific products, yeah. right? And so bringing in Marcus Paul 
who's an amazing stylist, who's worked Marcus with uh, you know, a lot of great clients, but also uh, consulted for several great brands. Matthew Henson, who you know I worked with at Complex when he was um, the fashion editor there. And uh, you know, speaking of gifting, he gave me my first Dries piece. Like, oh, yeah? in, in the future, when, when people look back on, on this podcast as like when Kanye West said that he gave Sway his first TV, it's going to be traced back to Matthew Henson giving me my first <laughs> Dries blazer, which was a chambray blazer with a leather button or leather strap belt mm. that, instead of a button as closure. Um, can't tell you what season it was from. Probably like spring 2011, I would say. Okay. But yeah, he gave me, he gifted me that. And he also gifted me my first pair of free sneakers, which were Puma Hussein Chileans, uh, which were the ones with the spikes oh, on the back. Remember those? Yeah, yes. So I yes, love those. I, I love wearing those um, on the subway because no one would walk behind me for obvious reasons. <laughs> but, yes. um, Social distancing. Know. Yeah. So Matthew Henson's great. And going on with his theme, you know, he wants to empower younger people and be a mentor to, to uh, young designers and young creatives who see themselves, you know, possibly following in his footsteps. And so for me, it was important to um, work with him in that manner too, because I've been, you know, a, uh, a recipient of his magnanimity. And I, mm-hmm. I think it's great. Um, I was also really Amazed to work with Aza Youssef, who is the style director at GQ France, I believe. And, okay. um, you know, she brought on, uh, Lamine, um, from Zuli Bet, which is like this designer mm-hmm. that, yeah. um, she helped him digitize his archive. And I think it's great because she's also worked with Andre Walker, who released his collaboration with Off White through, uh, us through this platform. And, uh, you know, in, in many ways, she expands that canon of what we think of or what, you know, stereotypically is thought of as like black designers or black fashion, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not a monoculture. And for me, that's the most important part of this conversation is, you know, when Aza was growing up in France, she saw Andre Walker um, with Marc Jacobs. You know, they were friends at, I think it was one of his uh, Vuitton shows. And, you know, she saw the importance of the representation and, um called him up and phoned him up to intern for him. And that was like literally a life-changing experience for her. So to have her be able to tell her story through her curation, I think is really important um, because not everybody, you know, who wants to be a designer or uh, any sort of BIPOC creative wants to create things that are like only related to hip hop or streetwear, right? Which to me, breaking out of that conversation and being able to speak to the width and breadth of you know these perspectives i think it's it's great to be able to have all these conversations in one you know space pardon mm-hmm. the pun but um yeah i think that, that was really cool and to also highlight uh beth gibbs with her brand Beppy's beauty supply which is not just you know i think what she's doing in the vein of taking the idea of a beauty supply store but then growing up in the world of um streetwear right she's a co-owner of union la um along with her husband chris gibbs she understands that you know a lot of streetwear lines have a lifestyle that defines them like for let's say for example like undefeated it's about sports and um kind of that through line that drives it for her she's taking that notion of the beauty supply store not only actually curating beauty supplies but turning it into this graphic visual language that informs the products she makes. And I think that's really cool. 
And then there's Harris uh, Elliott, you know, one of Sam's friends. Um, yeah, who's yeah. really bringing this Jamaican reggae approach to uh, the space. And his curation includes, you know, this uh, artist, Mark Anthony, uh, who has a label called Exhibit 69 that's like hand-painted leather jackets. Okay. And um, what's cool about that, too, is... Um, he DM'd me, you know, he was like, yo, yo, man, I was listening to the Dropcast while I was painting these. And I used to think one day this guy is going to know who I am. <laughs> and that just floored me because, you know, I certainly don't hold myself on any certain pedestal. Yeah. But, you know, to hear that coming from somebody and then to have this full circle moment, one of many, actually, because uh, I, I talk about how I worked with one of the vendors here. You know, it's um, it's great. You know, it's like. Earlier, I talked about how sometimes some moments make you feel old when kids are like, oh, yeah, yeah I used to read you. Now you have, you know, the other moments where it's about genuine connections and also just mm. being unaware of how your work proliferates and who's watching it. Right. And yeah, so for sure. I think that's amazing to oh, yeah. we, think yeah. that, you know, I don't even know what episode he was listening to, yeah. but to, yeah. to know that it's something stuck with him and like that experience, you know, certainly drove him to the point where now we're sort of working together in this capacity. I think it's great. Um, but I think for, for me, one of the other additional younger uh, creatives we're highlighting is uh, the Chicago-based artist, um, Adeshola Makinde. You know, and, and I know like if any young kids are listening, right? He is from Chicago. He used to have a brand uh, that he would DM me about, I think during my complex days. Because obviously, you know, as an editor, I'm getting so many different emails or I got so many different emails about, hey, can you check out my brand? Will you please, you know, look at what I'm creating? And I I try to look at as many as I can, but I'm not able to. And um, so Adeshola had had this brand and and then he shifted to become this fine artist who subverts. Well, he has two things, right? He has this collage practice where he subverts... um, advertisements from black magazines and images of figures like James Baldwin uh, and the Black mm-hmm. Panthers um, into collage works. And he uh, he brought that back as a t-shirt line for us for Black Space. But, uh, oh, yeah, brought, I saw those. Yeah, 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 so what brought him back to my attention really was his other project with billboards where he, uh, it's through a nonprofit, I forget which one, but he takes over billboards in public spaces and uh, displays messages like we need to end police brutality now. And so I thought that was just super powerful in the way he was subverting the medium of advertising and, and turning that into a platform for, you know, public art, but also it's like an equivalent of, um, you know, that movie three, three billboards in Ebbing, Missouri, yeah, where it is kind of like incredible. that really powerful imagery of a billboard by the street or in a public space. And I thought that, that really struck me. But, you know, he, it's a, he's a testament to just being consistent about keeping on doing something and being able to pivot to something else that ultimately, you know, if that clothing brand doesn't work out, maybe you have another calling as an artist. And right. that's another full circle moment yeah. for me where I really wanted to bring him on in some capacity to this project because I felt mm. like his voice is something that I wanted to help amplify as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, you just preempted my uh, next article for High Snobiety a bit <laughs> when you said, <laughs> like, you get so many requests, uh, like, hey, look at my line. Um, 
but hold that thought. I don't want to divulge too much. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. It's like <laughs> if you if you walk down the street, you know, it's like Instagram DMs. It's it's the digital equivalent of like, yo, fam, do you like music? You know, you walk yeah. past Times Square, somebody's gonna try. I don't understand why people try to hand you CDs these days. First off, who has a CD yeah, player? I don't know either. I don't yeah. know. You know. I mean, so, I do, but I'm in the minority. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm an indefinite minority. I definitely haven't had like, I mean, um, unless it's maybe like a PlayStation, I don't think I have anything that has a disk drive in it. Yeah. But I wanted, I wanted to ask you something that I never got to ask, but since we started talking about minorities, have you ever gotten static in your career or been pushed back because you're Asian because of the way you look? Um, I think, yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, it's certainly, you know, uh, feeling like an outsider, not just because of my experience, but also because looking visibly different, I think has been a factor in some cases. I mean, I've been, I've been racially profiled going to the building that I live in really? <laughs> recently, oh my you know, God. um, Sometimes Seriously? it's like, the, sometimes um, I think um, it's like I'm a delivery person. More yeah. recently, you know, if there's a new person at the door, it's like, excuse me, like, where are you going? And it's like, I, I live here. Work. <laughs> yeah, I live, live yeah, I'm here. going, I'm going home. And, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's institutionalized, right? Because of the people who are asking me these things or like who are questioning me are not white people, right? Uh, quite often. There are other minorities who Mm -hmm. see someone who looks like me and automatically think that person looks like they might not live here, you know? So I think that's that's definitely something that people are dealing with on a daily basis, something I've certainly felt. Um, And I mean, there's been instances for sure where, you know, certain jokes or certain remarks are said when I'm in present where I'm like, I don't think that's the most kosher thing to say. I remember being, I went to theater once, it's a dance performance with, mm-hmm. with, with my friend, Carlo, Carlo mm-hmm. Steele, and we were just hanging out by the door and someone came up to them and to us and they thought he was an usher. And I was just like, fuck. Oof. And he was like, yeah, man, this wouldn't be the first time. Yeah. And mind you, like, you know, Carl is one of the most stylish people I know. Of course. So he was certainly like not dressed like an usher, like by any stretch of imagination, mm-hmm. but just just because he's black. And you forget. I mean, I forget that sometimes. Uh, and I only and I haven't encountered that in a very long time, but certainly in my teenage years. Because an accent is still an accent, for example. Right. Yeah, but if I don't open in my don't, don't open my mouth, I think I'm fine. <laughs> 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 but as you very well know, I cannot not open my mouth because that's what I do. <laughs> you you know you have to live your truth. But back to those validating moments. I remember, and I'm going to ask you if you had any 
you know, if you recall any others, which I'm sure you have. Well, you got the whole Virgil Abloh saga, even though it's kind of public <laughs> knowledge by now. Yeah. But you want to recount that because that was hilarious. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that was definitely one of the lasting uh, moments, right, is when um, I think it was when the first Pyrex Vision collection came out. Uh, I was at Complex at the time. We just founded Four Pins. And um, I was doing some digging and I found on Tumblr like this image of uh, one of his flannel shirts with Pyrex 23 screen printed on the back. Um, and it was eerily similar to a Ralph Lauren rugby flannel. And, and rugby was, you know, the kind of younger offshoot of um, mm -hmm. Ralph Lauren that kind of had its footing, kind of didn't. It, it, it didn't sure if it wanted to be super logo mania, super preppy. I mean, in many ways, I think Noah has succeeded what Ralph Lauren rugby should have been in terms of taking the right. idea and uniform of American prep and subverting it either through subculture or through, you know, a little bit mm -hmm. of like a twist, like uh, taking cues from Italy or Japan, for example, or taking yeah. cues from the skate world. Totally. Um, but that's just, that, sorry, I'm, I want to interject for a second. But yeah. That's the very thing why Noah succeeded, succeeded where rugby failed is because they know the culture. Right. You know, it's, it's not gone from top down where it's like, you know, faking it basically. Well, yeah, and, and I think the main difference is Noah knows who it is, right? Brendan and yeah. Estelle, the way they run that brand, they have a clear point of view and a vision for like, how they want to do it and the aesthetic that they want to own. And then rugby was sort of like trying to be so many different things at once. Yeah, that's exactly. Why, that's one of the reasons yeah. it didn't work. That's not the only reason, but we digress. So yeah, it turns right. out that yes, Virgil had taken these rugby flannels or someone on his team, um, screen printed them and marked them up for around 700%. I think the retail price was something like 500 to $600 and they were being liquidated for about 35 39 i can't remember the exact figures but um mm. there was a the artist jim joe took the quote from that four pins article that was um a pull quote and turned it into like an industrial size rug that i think greeted the off-white showroom um i think for the 2013 2014 season uh and i was in london at the time when this was happening. And then Lawrence Schlossman texted me. He's like, please tell me you've seen the rug. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, uh, it happened around my birthday. I remember that, which was like really funny um, and ironic to see that happen. And, and now it's also the first thing that I think uh, people walked on when um, he did his exhibition at MoCA and mm -hmm. it's since traveled, I guess, to other museums. I think it was in the High Museum as well. But um, yeah. yeah, he actually sent me one. He sent me uh, my yeah, own yeah, version of the rug as well, which is, <laughs> you know, an, an, like a, another closed circle of sorts. Yeah. I remember my first validation moment was when <clears throat> Rick Cohen's mentioned Style Zeitgeist in an Arena on Plus article. Oh, nice. Or on Plus, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. We're talking like, 2007 or something mm -hmm. 2008 and someone on the forum posted it so i ran out and bought the magazine which i still have on my shelf oh wow like, obviously never getting rid of that and that was the first time that's when i plucked up the courage 
to write Rick and say, I want to interview you for the third article I wrote ever in my life. It was, it was that it was when I was writing for the Israeli paper, Haaretz. Mm-hmm. My first article was about Atelier, you know, the, the store. My second was, was Andy Millimister. And I sent that article to Rick, uh, to Rick's PR. And they said yes. And then we were in the showroom. I was interviewing him. And he was, the showroom was back then at his house uh, on, the, on the ground floor. And so as we were talking, like I plucked up the courage to say like, yeah, that styles, I guess is my forum. And he was like, I figured. <laughs> <laughs> so that's amazing. Yeah. That, that was our first conversation ever. Oh, wow. Uh, that, yeah, that was our first conversation ever. And the next one I did June, June Takahashi. That's right. Yeah, I mean, my first four articles, like, come on, four, four, four. Like, it of doesn't course. get a better better beginning of a career than that. And that article, that was my real introduction to fashion, to the perks of fashion journalism. Mm-hmm. Because Michelle Montagne wrote, because they love the Anz Millimister article, which, of course, you know, Anne is my queen. Um, and they love that article. And so Michelle wrote me and she said, do you want to interview Jun Takahashi? This is 2008, I want to say. This is right. the and first this is the time. BOF article. No, no, no. BOF was like 2015. This is the article oh, that no yeah. one knows that exists, but it exists out there. So if you Google enough, you'll find it. Yeah. This, this is, is like a deep two, cut. Yeah, 2008, Israeli newspaper Haaretz. So Michelle Montaigne writes me, do you want to interview Jim Takahashi? I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, what kind of question is that? Yeah. And... She said, okay, great. You have to come to Florence. And I was like, well, I don't have money to buy a ticket to Florence. She's like, no, we'll pay for you. And I was like, what? That exists? (laughs) (laughs) And so that's how I ended up at Pizzioma for the first time. And that was the undercover show at Pizzioma. Oh, yeah, that's when he was the featured designer. Yeah, he did the Dieter Rams collection. Yes, of course. Was based classic, in classic yeah. collection. Yeah, insane, insane, and uh, yeah, that was an amazing experience. Again, yeah, all this validation where you, I remember you posted a quote of Anthony Bourdain after he died, where he mm-hmm. said, "Like throughout my career, I feel like I've stolen a Ferrari and I'm driving it, and I'm looking in the rearview mirror." like waiting for the cops that's yeah i still 100 percent feel that you know <laughs> me too me too this is exactly this. um anyway meanwhile you're in new york and you are writing but you're also dressing yourself you're also getting into the world you're getting into the world of fashion and you start getting to play i still get fits off you know so yeah and that's I think one of the advantages of being able to come into the office and being able to, you know, put it together outfits as well as just, you know, going out to like socially distance restaurants. Like, I mean, I, I spend my weekends still walking to around Soho, visiting different shops, visiting friends at different places. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, 
I love getting dressed still. And part of it is, keeps me sane <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> same, same. I still go out. Yeah. I, it's funny the whole concept, the, you know, what people call streetwear. And I always said, I'm in the street all the time, you know? Yeah. So like my streetwear is a pair of boots, a pair of jeans, a t-shirt and a leather jacket. And I, always yeah, thought, I mean, like, that's exactly, you know, the same sentiment Kim Jones had, right. When I, I interviewed him for his Dior debut, uh, when he was talking about, you know, streetwear is nothing really more than clothes you wear on the street. Yeah, exactly. It's it, I like it's it's it should be open to suggestion. I was thinking this morning and preparing for the podcast. It's like, is it going to be cheesy to ask Gene to describe his personal style? And then I thought, <laughs> how would you describe the personal style? And I thought, uh, my personal style would be described as disdain for society right <laughs> <laughs> so that's it what's yours <laughs> mine is uh it, it it depends it changes you know i always yeah. like to say you're either a uniform dresser or an emotional dresser and i'm 100 percent an emotional dresser yeah and i'm 100 percent uniform yeah. yeah you know for, for me it just starts uh, I, I, I talked about this in another podcast right i start with one item that i know i'm gonna wear and then mm -hmm. I just build around that. Like today it was yeah. this undercover sweatshirt with uh, the worm coming out of the gill apple. And then yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm going to wear that. I have these like kind of uh, Lurex tweed needles trousers that I want to pair them with. And um, this pair, pair of Nike Dunks that I want to wear. Um, and I want to, you know, it's just gravitated to a mostly undercover fit because then I was like, I haven't worn the uh, um, undercover quilted bomber with the hood from a uh, fall 20 in a while yeah with toshiro mifuni's face on it being shot with an arrow and i was like yes this is yes. going to be the fit yeah awesome uh it's it's funny how i guess it speaks like it's, it's a testament to june's to breadth of june's work is that you and I wear undercover in completely different ways, even though yep. <clears throat> undercover is like both like our all time favorites, I think. Right. Of course. And we, you know, it's crazy to me when we have the same items, like the Borman's parka. Right. And we both like geek out about it for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's definitely an outlier for me, for sure. Right. For sure. Yeah. I mean, because I, I feel like, you know, we're, when we would look at the fall 21 collection from undercover, you know, I can imagine you geeking out over some of the Marcus Ackeson pieces. For me, it's the oh, fact right. that he turned an East Pack backpack into a jacket. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm 100% no, about yeah. that. Yeah. For sure. For sure. But, uh, oh, yeah, the Ackeson uh, parka is joining the Bormans. You oh, know, I'm they're sure. Gonna be like they're going to be like two twinsies. Because <laughs> like, the Bormans parka is, uh, you know, feels lonely because I have it out uh, on a dress form. This is mm -hmm. my art piece that I don't need to put on the wall and doesn't cost as much as an art piece. And I'm like, yeah, I think you need a, you know, you need a friend. Right. You got to switch it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's hard for me to do color, not only because, so, okay, I wear black for various reasons. Obviously, you know, obviously it's a worldview thing, philosophy thing, music thing, whatnot. Uh, but one of the reasons is that 
you know, once you get over like freaking out about Shades of Black not matching, which mm-hmm. I finally stopped, <laughs> uh, it's kind of easy. And then the color is kind of hard. And I, so when I wear color, which is usually jewel tones, you know, mm-hmm. or uh, I'll wear color that goes well with black. This is my thing. I'm like, I'll wear everything right. else black and I put on a piece that has color in it. And that works for me. But you are good at mixing and matching. Like you're almost in Ledris Van Noten territory in a way. Yeah. And it kind Honestly, of that's why he's like one of my favorites, right? Because it's just he sort of throws everything together. And you know, I think a lot of it is just eventually curating and culling, right? I, I sell a good portion of clothes that I buy on a regular basis, um, whether it's through like online resale platforms or sometimes I just give stuff away. Mm. Like I recently got a new pair of 18 East um, work pants and Antonio Chungali, you know, he, he reworked the top block and has it fitting differently than the previous iteration, which the top block was a bit slimmer. So when I got the new pair, I just gave the old pair away to actually one of our employees at uh, our Nike Nordstrom store, just because I think I'm definitely at that point where I can start, you know, passing on, passing on the Johns <laughs> to yeah. uh, a younger generation too. <laughs> um, and, you know, because not only do I not need to sell everything, like certainly there's pieces that hold a value mm-hmm. and it's always nice to just, you know, not have to go to Buffalo Exchange or whatever, but just have like the real real or somebody just pick stuff yeah. up and then it's just like, stuff shows up for old Supreme. I don't wear anymore, but, um, you know, when I can, I try to give stuff away to people. Well, I think it's also great. Like I'm trying to get to a point where, yeah, I'll also do like an archival sale once every six months. And I think if I can get to a point where what I sell funds my future purchases, like that's, that's where I'm at. Right. Is like the reason why I had to get rid of so much stuff is because I just bought the Raph Simmons Redux Parka, <laughs> you know, that, that consumed Ouch. Parka with uh, Peter Seville graphics yeah. on it, my hand painted graphics. And I'm like, okay, well, this yeah, is going to be an investment, but I'm going to have to figure out what to move. Yeah. Yeah. I looked at those things. You know what? I, I couldn't pull the trigger. I don't know. I'm just. To me, I haven't bought a rough piece in a very long time, mm-hmm. uh, very, very long time. Though I am kind of tempted by that turtleneck you have on the, on Nordstrom website because oh, it's yeah. just such an iconic classic. But I got to say, like, it felt a little bit like a money grab for me. You know, it was like, eh. Just maybe the way it was done, or maybe I'm being too cynical, which is, I have to say, like, where we are at in fashion, like, I'm trying not to remain cynical, mm-hmm. but it's hard. <laughs> and, it is. And, you know, you sort of have to find the joint things, which I, I guess that, that characterizes how <laughs> I dress and why I dress the way I do too, right? Is Yeah. From the perspective of someone who isn't trying to be a cynic and someone who isn't trying to be, you know, I really want to explore newness. I want to explore new designers, um, not necessarily in the world of menswear. Like I love what Meryl Rogue does, 
you know, she's a Dries mm-hmm. Van Noten alum. Uh, we carry her actually, Nordstrom carries her in, in the space, like the emerging designer section. Um, and there's like this amazing button down that's like half fire, half water. It's like a boxy fit that I definitely might buy. But there's also a really nice padded, almost like exaggerated coach's jacket with uh, mm-hmm. covered fabric buttons that, you know, almost has, it has like this fluorescent um, yellow inside, but like this kind of tan sheen exterior. Uh, it almost feels like a Marnie piece or something low key like mm-hmm. that, that, you know, you could wear people would be like, what is that? That kind of super subtle um, fashion piece where, you know, it's not ostentatious, but people can tell it has that sort of je ne sais quoi. Yeah. And that's another yeah. reason why I love like Angelo Arutia's line for us design so much too, because that's exactly what he specializes in is like, mm. you know, very cerebral takes on classic menswear items that are turned up to 11. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that one, uh, but I haven't seen the clothes in person, so I can't really judge. Uh, but I saw it on Instagram. It seems like I saw an article in GQ that Noah wrote. Josh Beskowitz posted on Instagram, which kind of brings me to a point I wanted to talk about. How do some designers break in and others don't? And it seems like what you need to do, and I think you've been very good at it, uh, is to cultivate a network of people. Mm -hmm. Because the more I watch the industry, the more it feels to me that who you know is incredibly important because we are under like such a barrage of clothes Mm -hmm. and of lines. How do you even stand out? You either going to have to do something incredibly outstanding, but what I see more and more and between us, and I don't know if you're fatigued by it, but I I certainly am. Is this classic with the twist mentality Mm -hmm. that that is cool until there is too much of it. And right. and, then, and it started in this kind of, you know, it, it started in the tailoring world, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like, and I was thinking about it this morning again while I was thinking about what to ask you. But I feel that's where we at with streetwear. And I kind of like, yeah, like I don't really care if I see like another coach jacket, but there will be like, you know, a different kind of sleeve or like it. I'm getting fatigued by it. I don't know. If you do. So you're saying that streetwear has kind of hit its semantic satiation phase for you, where it's like, exactly. okay, people keep on saying it and it just kind of doesn't hit the same. Yeah, exactly. And it used to be awesome. And, you know, like Chris Gibbs explained it to me best when, remember when I was in Tokyo and by chance I met Right, because people don't know that you you wrote about Union Tokyo when they first opened as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and it was a funny story because I'm walking in Amatisander and I hear someone yelling my name. And I'm like, well, this can't be in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I turned around and it's Ricky. Do you know Ricky? He, Ricky used to work at Comme des Garçons. And then he went to work with Chris at Union. I don't know if he's still there, but he was certainly at the time. He's mm-hmm. um, a... This is a black guy, medium height, uh, really funny, very, very outgoing. But anyway, 
So I turned around and it's tricky. And I'm like, what are you doing in Tokyo? He's like, oh, we're opening Union tonight. Oh, wow. And so, and so I texted you at, and you were like, yeah, of course we'll want an interview with Chris Gibbs. And that's uh-huh. how the whole thing happened. But in that interview, Chris explained to me his fascination with streetwear best, which is, was absolutely the same thing that I felt where he said, you start dressing as a teenager, you know, you got your sweatpants, you got your sweatshirt, everything fits like shit. You grow up and all of a sudden you encounter an elegant version of that. And you're like, oh, it's a sweatshirt that conforms to the contours contours of my body. Mm -hmm. And it's made from like loop wheeled fabric, you know, and it doesn't lose shape after a third wash, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, yeah, this is exactly how I got into designer fashion because I found perfectos that actually fit and that don't look like shit because mm-hmm. I got com- I found combat boots that are like Dr. Martens, but like 10 times better and so on and so on and so on. It, it, it was the absolutely same mentality. And that's how Chris and I bonded, you know, in that interview because I was, I totally got where he was coming from. Right. But anyway, fast forward to 21 and, and this is some kind of a little bit like, fatigued of this well i mean you know to answer your question like how does one break through and how does one create something that feels novel in you know this paradigm where everybody's sort of forced to experience things vicariously whether you know it's a flagship show like prada or you know someone making do with the current situation like one of the promising young labels i'm certainly seeing uh is called Tom Bogo, and it's run by this guy named Tommy. Um, and so, you know, I don't think it's about who you know, it's, or, you know, in terms of how to get ahead. I think it's, I think it's about, yes, to a certain extent, it's who you know, but how they inspire you and what you guys do together, right? It's, we're in this new age of people building their friends up and people supporting mm-hmm. each other, you know, the, the post supporting the homies, throwing fits era, yeah. right? Which is something that COVID has also, uh, brought awareness around supporting small businesses, supporting independent designers, um, supporting BIPOC designers. But with Tom Bogo, they they had um, a show for New York Fashion Week, which you know I didn't. I don't think anybody realized it was happening. But the YouTube video, right? <laughs> Just like the rest he, of the fashion. Week. Exactly. He collaborated <laughs> with um, this young artist named Leon Zhu, who uh, I believe went to Cooper Union. But um, he, I knew him as a shop guy at 18 East. So he only works Saturdays. He's like this young uh, Chinese kid, but he's a very, very, very good artist. He's, he's a painter. And uh, they collaborated not just on like certain graphic pieces and taking some of Leon's works and putting them on things like hoodies, but he was also the art director for the show. And uh, the way that, you know, Tommy, he, Suits and Nuts, he did the soundtrack. Like mm-hmm. you hear this song and it's like, who is this singing? And then at the end of the, of the five minute video, you're like, oh my God, it's, it's him. It's like him producing the track coming up and like writing this song loosely inspired by the theme of the collection. And um, it fits, right? Because the way that I would describe the aesthetic that he's built is, is sort of this uh, ambiguous bi-coastal youth uniform, like double knee uh, pants with interchangeable pockets so you can switch them from like 
double knees to multi-pocketed cargos, uh, very washed takes on things like Yankee caps, uh, intricate knitwear, I think also done in collaboration with uh, Leon Su. Uh, and, and then watching the show, you know, it, it filled me with that same kind of nostalgic teenage angst that mm-hmm. I got when listening to that Olivia Rodrigo song, Driver's License, right? Have you heard that one yet? Or is your daughter no. into that one? It's like this new pop culture thing that's taking people by oh, storm. Oh, yeah, wait, wait, wait. Yes, I believe she played it for me. Yeah, and you know, it's just so earnest in the sort of teenage emotion. Yes, yes, emotion. yes, totally. Yeah, yeah, yes. she played it for me, yes. that This show made me feel that same way. Mm. And I think so it's, it's totally possible to create something that feels new or just, you know, stands out in that way. And I think a lot of it is just working with your friends, supporting each other, being consistent. Because, you know, this is this is Tommy's first show, I believe, but he's been doing it for at least a couple of years. Like, I remember one of his early pieces that he sent me was actually a Yankee cap with cargo pockets <laughs> <laughs> snap buttoned to the side. <laughs> and so to see him, like, take this sort of goofy kind of aesthetic and, and morph it into these new codes, I think you know, shows that he's willing to perfect his craft and he's gotten noticeably better. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah, I can. It's hard for me. I guess also because I'm also so much on the fringe of everything. Mm -hmm. But it is getting hard for me to find new designers whose work I really feel like, yeah, this is is great. Yeah, because I think... That, that's one of the disadvantages, right? Not being in like the fashion show or fashion showroom experience. And that's why I'm a big proponent of just going to stores, finding things and, and really having oh, that yeah. be a vehicle for discovery. Uh, because it's easy to discuss, to like find stuff. It's easy to like force yourself to listen to new music, to look at new brands, to look at new art. What's hard is like what sticks, what actually yes. has staying power. So, you know, everyone has their own modes of intake and sponging. But then after, you know, you mull it over for a couple of days after or like a week after, what's stuck with you? And to me, that has helped inform like what I champion and what I like. Because certainly if something has passed through this filter of random crap that's in my head, then certainly it has to mean <laughs> something. Even if it just means something to me. There's a very sure. specific reason why it means something to me. You know, and I think... Yeah watching um did you see the prada women's show and uh, the panel not, they had after yet. not yet it was like a it was like avengers endgame of fashion snobs <laughs> with hunter <laughs> schaefer who's amazing by the way i love her in euphoria but um and uh yeah i think they had um lee daniels as well as the, the director but they had mark jacobs mm-hmm. uh rem cool of course raf simmons um this is prada and uh I think it was being moderated by Derek Glassberg. But one of the questions mm-hmm. that came back was like about the Pradaness, right? And I think Rem Koolhaas had the most perfect answer to what he defines as the Pradaness, which I think you would like. It actually made me think of you uh, because mm. he said that it, it, it's not so much, it, it is Mrs. Prada, but it's the way that she doesn't just hate something. She, there's a certain method to how she dislikes something. Right. And um, the way he described it was, you know, she explores every aspect of what she dislikes and then does something with that energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds about right. Thank you. That's a good, that's a nice compliment. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. It's true because I do feel 
you can't criticize something and be uninformed about it because that's just and i i think this is this i think that's what makes one a snob Mm -hmm. when you criticize something without knowing it what it is you know without having to without having examined it uh and i'm not saying i know everything but yeah you know I, i do try to get at uh the crux of the matter uh I, I am getting more and more bewildered by the day. <laughs> right. uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't know, but I also try to remain optimistic as much as I can because I feel if we lose that, we need to find another job. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, like there's been a shortage of older people who, you know, get it. I think Glenn O'Brien was certainly one of the last of that breed, right? Yeah. To have someone like him see the similarities between Hermes and Supreme and then, you know, be so willing to do photo shoots and talk to guys like Tyler, the creator, with the same mm-hmm. energy that I feel he exuded in, like, Glenn O'Brien's TV party when he had, like, Fab Five Freddy and Klaus Nomi there. Yeah. You know, to, to me, it's like that kind of elasticity and being open to those kinds of new experiences, I think is what's most important. Exactly. But on the flip side of that, you acquire experience that is priceless. Of course. You know, because you, because you've been there, you've seen it firsthand and that's where I'm starting to feel where I'm at. When you can start drawing parallels and like Tim Blanks is great at it, right? Oh, Tim Blanks is yeah. OG. He'll be like, like oh, that. yeah, in 1979, you know, there was this amazing thing. And now in 2011, we're yeah. <laughs> and I think that is irreplaceable. Um, and what I love seeing now is like kids on Instagram digging up archival stuff and yeah. geeking out on that. And I love that. And uh, and then I get to come in and say, yeah, you know, I was there. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and I think it's great. Well, that, that, uh, that to me is also, you know, speaking of, of getting older, that, that's kind of uh, what blows my mind now is the rise of archival accounts. And, uh, you know, there's Sam Trotman, uh, who I used to work with at WGSN and has exploded on Instagram as Samataro. Um, he's like a streetwear history account in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and the people that are connecting with him are it's strange to say this it's it's kids who look at 2005 and think i was born in the wrong era right <laughs> you know yeah, yeah like yeah. there's there's literally it blows my mind that there's also literally 15 year olds who are looking yeah. at this era when like hype beast high snob were founded when uh pharrell released in my mind you know the album with um the baby milo cover and they're like man i wish i could have been there for that mm-hmm. and you know yeah. we we were there for that whether we participated yeah. directly in it or not and it's still just like this is crazy is this what it was like you know for joe corey to see people celebrating punk and being like what are you guys doing this wasn't supposed to last like why you're emphasizing this kind of thing exactly but i do think in a roundabout in in some way it's a testament to actually how on so how so much culture has become vapid and commercialized that the kids are not stupid, you mm-hmm. know, and they are going back and finding out about this stuff and really seeing it 
yeah, it is was kind of a golden era, even though it's hard to say, like everyone has their golden era. I suppose like uh, for some, it's the 80s. For some, oh, yeah, it's for, the for 90s. For me, it's still the 90s. You know, yeah, that was like right. the, the last gasp of us versus them in terms of alt culture and monoculture. Exactly. And when I interviewed Carlo Steele for the f- one of the episodes for this, of this podcast, I said, you know, Atelier was such a, an incredible thing that highlighted hash fashion at its creative height as far as the cerebral aspect of it, as far as the cultural aspect. And he said, you know, I thought I really came in at the tail end of it. And to me, it was a bit shocking to hear because I thought it was right in the midst of it. You know, you, you still right. had the second wave. You, the Antwerp 6 were really strong. The Japanese were super strong. You had the second wave of Belgian design. Uh, you had great things happening here. You know, you had Cloak uh, and so on and so on. And there were the Antwerp Such an underrated brand. Dior Om, yeah. you know. <laughs> and so, yeah, I guess everyone has their golden age. By the way, Cloak Show was the first show, like you said about, you know, sneaking into shows. Mm-hmm. I snuck into a Cloak Show. That was the first show I... Oh, wow. I snuck in. It was right across the street from Atelier on Crosby. And basically, I was at the store when they were closing up shop. And Carlo was like, oh, we're going to go see Cloak across the street. And I was just like, I'm coming with you. <laughs> you know? I wasn't yeah. even I, I wasn't even writing yet. You know, I think it was like 2005. I, uh, I think I didn't even start Styles I guessed yet. Or maybe it was 2006. And I was like, I'm coming with you. So I just, and I just walked right in as if I belong there and my heart beating out of my chest. Super exciting. Incredible. Do you, do you remember the first show you snuck into? I, well, I'm, the first show I snuck into, I mean, I remember my first fashion week and I remember all the shows that I went to. I remember the first show that I was like, oh my God, this is fashion. Um, was Band of Outsiders, but my first oh, yeah. fashion show ever, and Band of Outsiders was a presentation, but I'll get to that. The first fashion show mm-hmm. I remember going to was also a presentation. It was New York Fashion Week, you know? It was okay. when they did like men's and women's at the same time, but it was actually a John Bartlett Claiborne collection. Because <laughs> I had been sent to New York to cover, you know, Fashion Week by ballet. Because I, you know, I did not living in New York. I, I wasn't one of those people. Like, I don't go to clubs unless I know I can get in. And I was never right. a person that's like trying to stand outside a show if I wasn't invited. If I didn't have a pretense to be there. Like, me right. having a pretense to be at like a show and waiting for standing is different. Because that's me, you know, as a wannabe fashion journalist or aspiring fashion journalist trying to get the coverage. Um, but yeah, for that, that was Band of Outsiders where... You know, I was essentially waiting to get in. I think it was at Milk Studios. And um, it was a 2008 collection where it was like very Royal Bombs. They had debuted their uh, Sperry collaboration. That that was the first thing that I, I remember seeing on the runway and then wanting to mm-hmm. get in real life. It was the ballistic nylon like take on the snow boot that Scott Sternberg made. But the funny moment there was... Um, 
I think Anna Wintour attended mm-hmm. and they made them redo like the model walk for her. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> yeah. that's like, this is the most fashion moment I've ever seen. And then, yeah, you know, they, models were taking photos of her because they were just like, oh my God, like yeah. she's here. Uh, so that that's was very surreal. Basics. Yeah. Did you write about that? I, I did, but you know, we didn't do reviews. We just did like short kind of okay. caption descriptions yeah. of um, what went down. I really did love that collection. And this is before, you know, they had that association with uh, Donald Glover and like Kanye West. So mm-hmm. it was definitely like on the up and up. That's cool. Um, cool. All right. I now want to get to a specific rubric I've developed for you. Okay. Called Explain This to Me. <laughs> <laughs> because we come to fashion sometimes I feel like from very different angles mm-hmm. uh, and there are some brands where like I try to understand and I still don't understand even though I go I look at the product I see the show and I'm like what am I missing and uh, I, I guess the main thought that goes through my mind is like why would I buy this when there is all this other cool stuff? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the first brand is Our Legacy. Explain it to me. Our, our Legacy, it's a, it's a way for, you know, it's, it's in the same, I think of Our Legacy in the same vein, I think of Engineered Garments, where they have these really experimental fabrics and really crazy patterns that gravitate to somebody like me. Like I, I really love their mohair knit cardigans, uh, they do these crazy wide leg pants. Um, same with engineered garments and, and Daiki Suzuki wanting to experiment with like crazy prints. Um, and that appeals to like, you know, the super kind of fashion-y customer that gets it. But I feel like, you know, the majority of guys who wear it, you know, it's like very die work wear in the sense that it's a more expensive, expensive version of things that they would buy from the heyday of J. Crew, but they've graduated mm-hmm. from that. You know, it's like for a lot of right. older menswear customers, not necessarily like fashion, but guys who are into clothing and want mm-hmm. to feel like, you know, they're getting something better that they can't get at the mall. Our legacy right. fills that gap because, you know, on one hand, it's accessible. On the other hand, it's, you know, very wearable. Uh, and, you know, there's the fabrics they use like tensile as a shirt feels experimental to a certain type of guy. Uh, and they can wear it in public. It's, it's that meme, right, of the guy at the party where he's in the corner saying they don't know I'm wearing our legacy. That's our legacy. <laughs> yeah. That's the appeal. Uh, which, by the way, you know what I was thinking we should do? Because I suppose because of the way we dress in our different perspective, I thought Gene and I should start a woman repeller Instagram <laughs> where... where Right, there is men repeller. Why there is right. no? Why is well, there I no woman repeller? I think men repeller has been canceled now, and also kaput. <laughs> so yeah. there is so definitely got a gap a, in the market. <laughs> there is a gap. We should start a woman repeller Instagram and like get submissions from guys who are like absolutely stylish, and they yeah. don't get why girls don't like. Them. Well, I think I think that's become <laughs> the trope, right? Is yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Th- th- this is how we know that. You know, men's fashion and men's interest in fashion has truly evolved and progressed is that it's no longer about dressing to be attractive. It's dressing to impress other dudes 
who are into the same thing. Yeah, well, and which like is traditionally a female domain, right? If you think, I, about I guess it, like. I, I, I think you know, there's that competition factor to it, you know, which yeah. I attribute to like NBA. Like I think uh, Alan Onia, who does upscale hype, his whole bio is like style is a sport, which I get. Okay, fine. Um, but yeah, I think I think it is like Lawrence and James and that whole ilk that uh, have come to the conclusion that if your girl hates your fit, then the boys are going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's like, kind of like that. Yeah. I'm like, how you dress will does not guarantee <laughs> that you will get a date. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Well, which is funny, right? Because I mean, my, my girlfriend works in fashion. We're both into clothing to a certain extent. And she loves nothing more than like, you know, joking about my outfits. And she'll directly text Lawrence and James about it. <laughs> like, I think the other yeah. day I was wearing... um like the Noah Provence print pants that have like, like a, it's a print inspired by, it's like very L'Occitane kind of wallpapery, mm -hmm. um, Southern France graphic on it with like a yellow um, Noah barber jacket and like a black hoodie. And then she like texted them a photo of what I was wearing with something like, oh yeah, just this man looks like a walking bottle of pee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah, we, but, but it's out of we love. should definitely do it. Oh, for sure. No, yeah. of course. But we should do it because I think there is. I I thought it'd be a hilarious thing to have and like take submissions from kids and be like a, a woman repeller outfit of the day, guaranteed to not get you a date. Yeah. <laughs> or don't dress like this. But in a way, it speaks to. I think it's a great misconception, you know, in general that. I think I'm so happy that it's finally being broken is that uh, women are inherently more into clothes or more stylish than men and know more about it. And I'm so glad we're like this stereotype is now being broken. Oh, yeah. It's and really we're, guys we're past that, Eugene. Now, if yeah. you want to get into, you know, the next barrier is interior design. <laughs> do you, do you have yeah, any like I'm, sure. I'm sure if you google like Chandigarh or like Pierre Jean-Array or Le Corbusier or Marcel Brewer the it's like GameStop stonks in how the rankings have gone up in this post Instagram world I mean you know I think it's it's natural that people are getting more into the canon of furniture but mm -hmm. that's, that's a trend that I've been seeing and I think it's yeah, yeah it's, it's cool in that more and more straight men are getting into the realm of interior design and classic furniture. Yeah. But, you know, sure. I just hope we don't ruin it. <laughs> so we have ruined other forms of yeah. consumption. Of course we will. By getting it's too no, dirty about it. Yeah, you know? no question about it. <laughs> yeah. I, but I yeah. think it also, it's, it's a testament also to, I think, um, the stage of your life we're at. Because I also started thinking about interior design where I realized mm -hmm. my closet is full. I looked around my apartment and I was right. like, this shit. Needs well, that's to that's the thing, right? That's that's the ethos is, does the crib match the closet? Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. well, you still have an Ikea mall in bed and you're yeah. stepping out in a $7,000 outfit. <laughs> yeah. Something doesn't confuse. Yeah. But it was also for me, part of it was because I, when I started Tell Zeitgeist full time and started working from home, mm -hmm. at some point I thought, you spend most of your time here. Like, I mean, now more than ever, right? Yeah. And now, and now more than ever. And, it, and it's one, and I'm sure you've had that itch before. And that itch starts usually with the closet where you wake up and all of a sudden you're like, I have nothing to wear. 
mm-hmm. right? Even though you have a closet full of clothes. Right. And one day you wake up in your apartment and you're like, I can't look at this anymore. And like, what changed? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Exactly. Like, you're the same. Oh, no, you're not the same. Like everything, like what changed from yesterday to today? Yeah, but for sure. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely reached that stage of, um, I guess, consumerism and uh, aspiration where I'm looking at a wall and I'm like, I wish we could have some sort of custom bitso set up there. <laughs> I'm looking at a couch and being like, you know, maybe I want a Togo or maybe I want to go like full Christian Liagre custom setup if I could afford yes. that kind of thing. Um, and that's how I used to think about, you know, certain shoes or certain brands. Like I used to be like, man, I wish I could afford Raf. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I guess that's just part of that hedonic treadmill, right? Where it's like the more you get to a place that you thought you would be, just sort of the difficulty level ramps up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But I've never, you know, I've never minded that. And I guess, I don't know. Are you a child of immigrants? Do, do, yeah. Do, do oh, I am an immigrant. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a naturalized oh, citizen. Oh, you weren't born you weren't born here. I was Oh, not. I didn't realize that. Oh, okay. Wait, how old were you when you came to the States? Five. Oh, okay. Or oh, four or yeah. five, one of one of those, yeah. Wait, did we come at the same time? I was fifteen, so I came in ninety two. I came in eighty nine or ninety. Okay, so a little bit earlier. Oh, oh I didn't realize that. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's part of that mentality. It's you come from nothing and kind of you do want to get to a place where you have something. For sure. But, you know, I think one, one part of that, right, and this is something I talked with Bobby Kim, aka Bobby Hundreds about, is like being able to enjoy them, right? Because one trope in like Asian households, especially Filipino households, is plastic covered furniture. Oh, are you kidding me? Same. <laughs> you know, and yeah. Dude, we're we're all different, but we're all the same. Let's like right. let's and, and that's that's to me like the qualm <laughs> I would have against like, you know, archive kids and you know, people who get furniture and covered in plastic is what's the point of having nice things if, you know, like I would hate to be the kid who is wearing like a pair of scab jeans or some sort of like Carol Christian pole or like Rick and just have a day be ruined. If like I spill cold brew or like a drink <laughs> on a garment and just be like, oh my God, my $900 pants. You know, it's, yeah. it's very like Arrested Development, Joe Bluth, like talking about how much a suit cost. Yeah, and, for sure. And, you know, it's the difference between like wearing the clothes and the clothes wearing you. Like don't yeah. spend that kind of money if you're just going to be afraid to wear it. Just embrace it and live life in it. That's what it's for at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. Although one could argue that living life in Carol Christian Paul is incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> of course. Or a Tai Chi Murakami, like the list goes on. But that's this yeah. is also why dry cleaners exist. You know, like don't don't get a luxury car if you're not willing to pay for supreme gasoline. Like don't indulge in luxury exactly. clothes if you're not willing to have, you know, a pretty regular dry cleaning bill. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. But I you know, I but I think also another part of it is not having that sense of entitlement that mm-hmm. you're and maybe this is part of what we talked about that you kind of you can't quite believe your fortune even though you've worked your ass off to get here and you still don't feel entitled fully to be here mm-hmm. and i do think it is an immigrant mentality in a way where you like it's almost like you 
it's hard for you to break the barrier coming from nothing and then having things. Right. Uh, and, and that's like, I still catch myself doing that. And, and I, like, I, well, sometimes you, you watch I, soul, right? Cause we, we were texting about Disney plus and how you were going to yeah, watch yeah. the new Pixar movie with, uh, with your yeah. daughter. Yes, I did. Watch and you know, that. I, I think a lot of it is that scene, right? Where, you know, minor spoiler, people haven't seen it. And it's like his whole aspiration is to, you know, make it quote unquote and play this jazz concert. And then when he does it, then it's like, oh, so then we just come back and, and do this again. Like, you know, it's that arrival fallacy of once I get to this, then I'll know I'm there. And then again, like going back to our earlier conversation, sometimes it's like, you know, the dream ends up being different when you achieve it. And how much of that, how much of wanting to be there is what fueled you getting there. And now that you're there, what's your next motivation? Like, it may not be all your, it's cracked up to be. So what can you do to either find meaning elsewhere, find fulfillment elsewhere, or, you know, hopefully it is like all that and more when you get there, you know, personally, it's like more about the work for me, like getting to a certain place just means, you know, it's a very Tom Sachs way of thinking like the reward for good work is more work, but that's <laughs> yeah, just the way I think. That's true. <laughs> that's true. But I also feel like part of, part of, you know, you, your ethos is that you just, you're also very nice. And oh, thank you. <laughs> there are actually, <laughs> fashion is not the industry where people are known for their niceness. <laughs> and every time I meet someone nice, I'm still pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I think that's t to me, right? That That's a stereotype that I actively try to subvert, right? It's like, to me, um, working, you know, with people like Sam and, you know, more recently, like I uh, had the opportunity to work with Olivia Kim, who I've admired from afar and um, her husband, Alex Diamond, who, you know, I've, I've worked, not worked directly with until recently, but um, he was good friends with like Noah Johnson, who um, mm -hmm. he worked with at Complex when he was still at Supreme. But, you know, why is it so disarming if people that you think are cool in your mind are kind and nice in real life. Like, why do we default to cool being disaffected and mean and like having to impress people or having to impress that person, you know? So I think the more I can kind of change that narrative, not that I think I'm cool. I think that, that what is, that's what it stems from, right? It's like, I don't really have any airs about mm -hmm. myself. Um, but in regards to that, like one of my favorite books is um, Noah Kerner and Gene Pressman's Chasing Cool which is essentially the idea of like what relevance is, how to package culture. Um, yeah. And, you know, if, if you're not familiar, you know, Gene Pressman, of course, is of the Barney family and helped oh, make yeah. that story what it was when it was Tayday. And Noah Kerner is a former DJ who now I think is a co-founder on some finance app. But um, what, what they talk about is, you know, cool is not something you chase or something you create, right? It's, it's a byproduct of doing things in a real way and doing the right thing. And that's something that was echoed by um, someone else in this industry who I greatly admire. And that's Gerald, Jarrett Reynolds, who um, is a VP of like creative projects and apparel designer at Nike. And, you know, the, he gets to work with June. He gets to work with guys like Errolson Hugh um, and Chitose Abe, right, on these amazing collaborative projects. But to him, it's like it's about the work. 
And it's about making sure that he's doing it in an earnest, authentic, real way. Not to use so many buzzwords, but you know, just oh, it's yeah. about doing no, it the right sure. way. And and then you know, if you do it the right way, then that then coolness would happen or something like that. You know, but cool is a byproduct. Exactly. Well, that's what you're touching upon. My favorite word, authenticity. And this is the thing. I feel like everyone is trying, like, how do we fake authenticity is like mm -hmm. the burning question in every corporate board right now, even though they just don't have it and you cannot fake it. For sure. And I mean, they should you know, all we, read the book. We live in a post Travis Scott McDonald's world and a post North Face <laughs> Gucci world. So yeah, exactly. Rough. And that's the thing, like, the, and I, to me, it's just a bigger turnoff because everyone is chasing that like every brand wants to build a community around it but mm -hmm. i'm like i don't know like what community can you build around cracker jacks you know or, <laughs> or you know tide detergent or i don't know the michael kors <laughs> right. but part, part of that right cracker jacks i mean tide detergent it's like you can lean into you know and that comes back to like marty newmeyer's the brand gap Right, where it's like a brand is not what you say it is, it's what they say it is, they being the constituents. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting when brands try to lean into the inadvertent communities that they create around product. And I, I think in fashion, and especially in corporate fashion and sportswear, i.e. the Nikes of the world, and you know, to a certain extent, even Burberry's, right? They've leaned into the sort of second lives their products have had and the communities that have spawned around these certain brands. Um, but with Tide, it's like, it's interesting in that, you know, not, not that they should be like, oh, well, this Tide pod thing is a meme, but I think it's interesting how they can subvert things that are happening in the zeitgeist and try to capitalize on it. I think Oreo does that really well from a brand perspective, but you know, any, any sort of brand, uh, <laughs> social media, I feel like, you know, he's take with a grain of salt, but you know, it is being people who can do that and figure out like that secret sauce, I think are certainly onto yeah. something whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing who knows but edward brand right. is which should be proud <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i have to brag by the way uh since you mentioned gene pressman uh i don't know if you remember when barney's was yeah, gone he out of business. You after you wrote your piece about barney's yeah yeah he he wrote me and he was like you're the only journalist who got it and i was like yeah Thank Amazing. you. Fuck, talk about validation. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, five more minutes and I'm letting you go. I know you have a long day ahead of you. Back to the explain to me rubric. Amy Leon Dore. Mm -hmm. Explain it to me. You know, I love Teddy. I think the one, the one thing I can say, he's been consistent in his vision. And it was a testament when the clothing he started to make started to more accurately reflect the mood boards he was putting forth. You know, a lot of what we're talking about when it comes to streetwear and building is world building. And he's managed from the jump to build a very consistent visual language and um, use images in a way that just makes you want to sit at his table. It's really super talented at. And um, he has he has a really good work ethic. You know, he puts mm -hmm. like when he designs a Porsche and like thinks about the story he wants to tell through it. He oversees it soups and nuts. You know, it's like, I would admire him because he is like 
Rick Owens in the sense that like Rick who has slept at his Italian factories to make sure buttons are being sewn on the right way. That's the same attention to detail Teddy pays to the way a sleeve falls in a lookbook. And I I think that, you know, no one can knock that level of attention to detail and, and work ethic. And I think it shows in the success of his brand, whether or not it's for you or whether or not, you know, you're a person that can, that would wear it or, if it's like your personal style, like you, you can't knock the fact that, you know, he's built that and willed it into existence and is continually trying to improve it and like push himself out of his comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I think with each new collection, it, it's it's one of the few collections that just really just gets better in the streetwear world, I feel like. Okay. I'll take your word for it. I mean, I know the cafe is doing well because <laughs> I always yeah, see lines of well. <laughs> Yeah, the you know the the Greek espresso. I forget what it's called. The the Fredo. It's got some sort of secret sauce in it because I you know I, I'll drink one and I'll just be up for like a month. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, again, like I think the appeal there, right? It's also an independent business, which I think is mm-hmm. another thing that it has over you know a brand like Supreme, which is at VF. And yeah. and to, in many ways, I feel like what ALD has sort of succeeded is that old school supreme customer. Yeah. All right. Next one. OAMC. OAMC? You know, I can't really explain that one. That's not that's <laughs> okay. more, you, you'd have to ask Chris Gibbs. I mean, <laughs> look, I, I get the history. I know it used to be this thing with Arnaud Faye as like back when it was overall master cloth, right? It was essentially a high-end version of Carhartt with Luke and Lucy Meyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of how I've always interpreted it, even though they've gone on to, you know, this more directional fashion line. I mean, I love what they're doing with Jill. I think a lot of the codes at Jill yeah. are established yeah. in OAMC. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I can't say I know enough to give a thorough explainer. Okay. Uh, Ami? Is it in the same boat as OAMC? Because <laughs> this is another O-A-M-C? one. I'm like, I don't know why it exists, but... <laughs> you know, Alexander Matiusi, you know, it's like his his thing. I mean, it did have its moment in like menswear, right? Where it was one of those... This is like the heyday of APC, right? Where yeah. menswear had its like dress like a French girl phase for mm-hmm. dudes. <laughs> and I think Ami yeah. hit that rubric Well, APC really well. is like the father of all these brands, of course. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, of course. But that's where, what, where that's, it's that's kind how of... I would sort of regard on me is like in that line of um, like office in general, I think is a modern update to that yeah, sort yeah. of style. It's just that very quintessential, like I throw on clothes in a way that seems effortless. Kind of look. I once went to a Ficine Generale show and I was walking in and Tommy Tan is like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I'm sure the same reactions people had when they saw you at Philip Klein. <laughs> oh, those were epic. I have a list of those. <laughs> but but with the yeah, with the fashion general, I was like, well, I'm just doing I'm just playing nice with PR. Like I don't yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um all right. I think well, I don't want to hold you up because it's been like two hours. And I know you got a lot. Uh, oh, last one, last one. Rowing blazers. Explain that one to me. Rowing blazers. Uh, well, it's someone who wanted to be Ralph Lauren rugby, 
you know? <laughs> I think that's kind of part of the inspiration. Um, Jack Carlson, you know, he's an Olympic rower, so he just wanted to make a brand. He started with a book of photography and then uh, just decided to start getting into the world of clothing. Um, and hence, Rowing Blazers was born because that's his thing and just wants to expand that canon of preppiness. Okay, I guess yeah. someone buys it. That's that's always my conclusion. Well, I guess someone buys it. Yeah, I think so, someone buys it. But you know, it's it's almost like when um, what's his face? Who who's that like footballer that had his brand? Dirk Bickenberg's. Dirk Bickenberg's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's kind of an extension. Well, it's like the same, yeah. Well, yeah. he's not well, a Dirk, footballer. He's one of the Antwerp Six. Unfortunately, right. <laughs> he moved to Milan and lost his very, mind. Yeah. <laughs> Did he play football or is he always a designer? Maybe I'm confusing him. No, he's one of the Antwerp Six. I mean, he's obviously into football. Yeah, of course. Uh, like Bickenberg's you know. now is a very like football-oriented line. But, you know, it's, it's an equivalent. Yeah, let's say like Rene Lacoste making a line. That's how I would equate okay. rowing blazers of Jack Carlson being an Olympic rower. And now he is a maker of rowing clothes and clothes inspired by the rowing lifestyle. Um, he's also really obsessed with heraldry. And like that whole study abroad Oxford um, aesthetic, because it's just a direct reflection of the life he's lived. So that's it in a nutshell. Okay. okay. Well, I thank you. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if uh, I'm gonna like it any better than I did before. <laughs> but, but, but I get it. No, it's always. Yeah. I mean, the reason I ask, I know, of course, it was jokingly, but I always love hearing your perspective. And it, you do explain things to me often, which at first glance, I'm like, I don't know why this exists, but okay. Yeah. Um, so thanks a lot, Jean, for coming on. I appreciate you being here and taking the time. And uh, anything else you want to say as parting words? Uh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. It's been fun. Cool. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Styles I Guys podcast, hosted by Eugene Rapkin, produced by Patrick Leduc, intro and outro music by Wesley Isolt of Cold Cave. Please support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Styles Thank you for listening.